Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have with me the amazing Professor Cynthia Bulick. Cynthia is a distinguished professor of eating disorders in the Department of Psychiatry in the School of Medicine at the University of North Carolina, where she is also Professor of Nutrition in the Gillings School of Global Public Health. And she is the founding director of the UNC Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. Cynthia is also a professor in the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. She is so incredibly passionate about translating science for the public. And at present, she is also the global lead investigator for the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative, something that I am incredibly passionate. So thank you so much, Cynthia, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today and to give our listeners a little bit of an insight into the importance of the genetics behind eating disorders. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So I just have so much respect and admiration for all your incredible work. And I cannot wait for our listeners to get a bit more of an insight because I know just how empowering it is to understand a little bit more about the biology behind eating disorders as a sufferer myself. So you are clearly very passionate about eating disorders and dedicated to making a difference in this space. What is the driving force behind all of this? Why did you decide to focus in on eating disorders in particular? Going back many, many years, I actually started doing research on childhood depression. And the person I was working with was asked to write a chapter comparing sleep patterns in people with anorexia to people who had depression, because that was the kind of research he did. And he didn't have time to write the chapter. So he said, Cindy, I'm really busy. Can you write the chapter? And I was like, I don't know anything about this. And so, you know, being the good investigative journalist that I am, I shadowed a psychiatrist on the eating disorder service in that hospital. And immediately I was intrigued. And I was intrigued because the people who were on the unit at that point, they were all women, they were about my age, but they all had severe anorexia. And at that moment, I realized that I had been surrounded by eating disorders my entire life and not known it. I was a figure skater. 
And throughout my entire figure skating career, there were so many people who would just start losing weight and then they would sort of disappear from the skating rink and, and not be training anymore. But no one said anything about it and there were no labels. And it was like this, my two lives converged. My academic life and my sporting life converged and the train was out of the station and it's been going full speed ahead ever since. I think that's incredible. It's, it's crazy how no one talked about it. You know, people just <sighs> disappeared, just fell off the radar. That was back in the 70s and it was so bad. One more story. I had one little skating friend who whenever we went to her house, we had to ask her mom for a key to the refrigerator. She had a padlock on the refrigerator. And, you know, we were so naive at that point. We were like, oh yeah, when you go to her house, you just have to unlock the fridge. But finally my mom was a pretty cool woman, asked her mom, can you just explain this refrigerator thing? Mm. And she was one of the very early cases of bulimia. And her mom just said, you know, it's really weird, but if we leave it unlocked, she'll just eat everything and then throw it up. There wasn't even a name for it back then. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? We have come a long way. We've got a long way to go, but we have to, we do have to sometimes take stock of the fact that we've come a long way since then. Yes. Yeah. When you look at it that way, you realize we've come leaps and bounds, actually. Now, so far in your career, you have achieved so much. If you were to choose some highlights to give our listeners a little bit of insight into, into some of the things that you've been involved in, what would they be? So I'm going to say one thing on the treatment side and one thing on the sort of biology side. And on the treatment side over the last decade, we've developed this couple-based treatment for people who have eating disorders and who also have partners. And the couple-based treatments, which we call you, You Can and Unite, actually bring the partner into treatment. And before this, for so much of my life, you know, partners and parents were excluded. You know, these partners have always wanted to help, but they have no idea what to do. There's no playbook. You don't, you know, you don't learn this when you get married to someone or when you get into a relationship with someone. And they have just been so grateful that they can go on this recovery journey with the person with the illness. So that's probably been, of all the treatment studies that we've developed, that's the one that is really nearest and dearest to my heart because it's been such a transformation. So that's the treatment one. And on the biology side, it's definitely what we discovered in the anorexia nervosa genetics initiative or the ANGIE study that I know lots of people in Australia and New Zealand have participated in. That is when we started unpacking what the genetic factors are that influence risk for anorexia. It didn't sort out as just being psychiatric, but we also showed that there was a metabolic component to it. And that really opened my eyes and sort of confirmed my suspicions that I had had for several decades in this field. And why is that so important to discover that there's a metabolic component to anorexia nervosa? Let's just think a little bit about what some of the biggest challenges are in recovering from anorexia nervosa. One of the things that I see a lot as a clinician is someone will come into the hospital, will re-nourish them, they'll gain weight, They'll get discharged from hospital. What happens nine times out of 10? They lose weight, right? Right. They relapse. Their body pulls them right back down to a low weight again. And this cycle, as you know, can continue over and over again. I know there's a strong psychology and there's a determination in the mindset of people with anorexia. But if you think about it, that is really hard to do. You know, my sense is that their biology is really pulling them back down. And I don't know if 
the differences in metabolism set them up for developing anorexia, or if it's something that gets perturbed after they have that first episode of anorexia nervosa. We still have to answer that question. But I think it's such a powerful illness and recovery is so hard precisely because it has both psychiatric and metabolic components. I couldn't agree more as we were speaking about before. And knowing that is just so empowering as someone who is, is living and breathing that disorder to know that there are both elements is just, yeah, it's so, so important. And I think it also really speaks to two really important things. One is, you know, people who really don't understand anorexia and just say, well, just eat. You know, all you have to do is eat. You know, to them, just eating might be quite simple and might solve the problem. But to someone who was biologically predisposed to anorexia, that's not going to work. It's not going to work psychologically and it's not going to work metabolically. So I think that's a really important, important thing to keep in mind. But I think all of the, this research and studies and, and Angie and Edgy, they're both going to really help to quash some of those myths and stigma that, you know, you and I both know, unfortunately, still surround all eating disorders. Because if we can go, no, look, here is research to show you that it's, it's not a choice and it's not as simple as just eating or just stopping binging and purging. It doesn't work like that. No. And I mean, nobody says that to someone with diabetes, you know, nobody says, oh, come on, pancreas, please. Could you just make some insulin? You know, I mean, that's not the way this works. We would never say that to someone with asthma either. But yet we seem to think that somehow people choose to have this potentially fatal illness. Makes no sense. No, it's, it's an absolute double standard and one that frustrates me no end. So you are currently the global lead investigator, as I said before, for the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative. For those who aren't aware of this incredibly groundbreaking study and what it entails, can you please give our listeners a little bit of an overview? Sure. So we talked a little bit about Angie already, which was the precursor. So the last study, we just looked at anorexia nervosa. And I said, that's not enough in order to do this well we A, need to increase our sample size, so recruit more people with anorexia, but we also have to broaden out and recruit people who have had lived experience of bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. And you can well imagine that I won't stop there and that we're also gonna be looking at ARFID, you know, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, so that we really can have the whole, all the illnesses that are under the umbrella of feeding and eating disorders covered. And so our ultimate goal is to actually recruit 100,000 people around the world who have at some point, at any point in their life, had an eating disorder because your genes don't change, right? So it doesn't matter if you're currently ill or if you were ill 20 or 30 years ago, we still want your DNA. What we're doing in this study is we've made it super simple to participate. So we have a lot of online questionnaires that you complete at your leisure. And then the way we get your DNA is actually we send you this little tube in the mail and all you have to do is spit into it, package it back up, send it back to the lab, and we're able to extract DNA from that little saliva sample. And then magically, you know, we have thousands of samples from people with eating disorders and we compare them to thousands of samples of people without eating disorders. And we look at the whole genome of both groups And by comparing them, we can see where differences lie. 
And then that is sort of what shines the, the torch on this is the part of the genome you need to look at for genes that influence risk for eating disorders. That's what we did in Angie, and that's what we'll do in Edgy for anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. And so with the saliva sample, I think I just think it's so great that there's something so simple, non-invasive. I've got a needle phobia, so it's great, you know, great for me. All that did it was spit into the tube. So, you know, how do you extract that information? How does that process work? Because it seems remarkable to me that you can get all of that from, you know, someone's saliva. Exactly. So Basically, I, I actually want to do a little infographic of how this works so people can sort of follow their saliva sample as it goes through the lab, right? So it comes into the lab, and then our lab people can extract DNA from it, right? And then you do something called genotyping. So we have these little itty-bitty chips that basically put like a million markers across the genome. And those markers are sort of tethered to different areas of the genome. You do that for every single person. You compare your groups of people with and without the illness, and then there's a whole bunch of statistical stuff that happens because what spits out, spits out of that, no pun intended, but what spits out of that is a readout of the entire genome. So you have a readout of everyone's genome in the sample, and then you do the statistical magic. It tells you where the differences lie. And then your bioinformaticians, so the people who, can, who really know everything, all the details about the DNA, can dive in and start looking and saying what genes are in those areas that you now know are the places to shine the torch on. It's amazing. It really is amazing. I think an infographic would be great. I'm just thinking, yeah, I think I, I think visualize it that. in my head, it would be fantastic. <laughs> and like, we're very privileged here in Australia to have the opportunity to be involved and this incredible research. What other countries are involved? And, and I know there are specific countries that had the headquarters there. Why were they chosen? What was the process behind that? So the National Institute of Mental Health is funding our study. North Carolina, so my institution is the lead institution. And NIMH is funding New Zealand, Australia, Denmark, and the United States. And then the UK has their own separate funding. Mexico has gotten their own separate funding. And we're also in the process of bringing on board the Netherlands, Germany, Taiwan, and Puerto Rico. Because one of the things that we want to look at is, do the same genes influence eating disorders across all these different ancestries? You know, the, the illness looks the same. I mean, I have studied anorexia in so many different countries mm -hmm. And I always say, if I'm homesick, all I need to do is walk onto an eating disorders unit because I feel at home, because it just looks so much the same everywhere, with, with some exceptions. One of the things that we see in Asia is you don't always see the drive for thinness as much in people with anorexia, but otherwise the core of the illness is really constant across different countries. But we need to make sure that the same genes are operating across different ancestry groups, but also across genders. So we want to make sure that we're really getting people from all genders participating in edgy. So with the difference in Asia, what do you think that is? Do you have sort of a theory as to why we don't see such a drive for thinness as we do in other cultures? I actually don't because for two reasons. One, one of the things we don't know is if it's changing. We don't know if as sort of westernization continues and accelerates, whether some of those body image ideals are sort of like infiltrating other Asian countries. And, you know, part of this is if we had 
really good longitudinal epidemiology where we studied people every year for 20 years, we would have these answers, but we just don't have those mm. kind of data in most countries in the world. Now, with IG, and then if we look at ANGIE, so the Anorexia Nervosa Genetic Initiative compared to what's happening right now, which is the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative, what are the key differences apart from the fact that the first one was obviously Anorexia Nervosa specific and now we're including other eating disorders? Are there any other differences? There are, and you'll be really happy given your needle phobia. ANGIE, we had to take blood draws. So genetics has actually come fast just in the amount of time between when we did Angie and what we're doing now. So we've gone from blood to saliva. The other thing that's different is our questionnaires are actually more comprehensive now. Angie very much looked at an eating disorders diagnosis and your eating disorder history. And we're still doing that. We're doing a very comprehensive evaluation of your eating disorder history. Once I finish this question, we should talk a little bit about why we do ask questions about weight, because that's something that often comes up. But we're also studying a bunch of other aspects of your life. So we're asking questions about depression, about anxiety, about substance use, about histories of trauma, because one of the things that we'll be able to do is also start to study genes that influence risk for more than one trait. So we want to understand whether I mean, between 70 and 80% of people with anorexia develop depression at some point in their life. Our guess is that there are some overlapping genes and then some specific genes. There are anorexia-specific genes, depression-specific genes, and then some genes that might influence risk for both. So by asking all these questions, we'll be able to parse those specifics out a little bit better. And going back to what you were talking about with weight? Yes. Numbers are hard for people with eating disorders, and we know that. In the best of all possible worlds, we would be able to do this research without ever having to ask about weight, but we do have to. And the reason we have to is because that is part of understanding the biology of the illness. You know, I don't love BMI as a measure. There are lots of problems with it. We all know that. But at the same time, it's important for us to be able to understand the biology behind someone who, you know, starts at a normal weight and becomes very, very, very thin versus someone who starts at a high weight and loses weight down to normal, in the normal range. And so those specifics from a biological perspective are actually really important for us to have. So you know, if people do ask, why are you asking these numbers? Those are really the only ones we're asking. We're not asking about calories or any of those things because that's just triggering. So you know, I always say, if when you're taking this survey, there are things that you're uncomfortable about, like numbers, you know, have someone that you can talk about them with, you know, have a trusted friend or a family member or your therapist or whatever, because the last thing we want to do is make you uncomfortable by the research. But it's sort of nice to be forewarned that you are going to be asked those questions. Absolutely. And it's great to know why and the importance <laughs> right. of that and how that's actually going to help. Obviously with Edgy, we're going to know a whole lot more, but what do we currently know about the role that genes play in the development of eating disorders? Like what did Angie reveal? So Angie revealed a couple of things. First, we identified eight of those areas on the genome that were associated with anorexia nervosa. So that was really the first big discovery. You know, for anyone who has ever said, I don't believe, you know, in quotation marks that genes play a role, well, you can't say that anymore, right? Because of the, the Angie results. But then the second part of Angie that in some ways was even more interesting was what we call genetic correlations. 
That is a technique where you can actually ask the question, to what extent do the same genes influence risk for different traits or disorders? And Angie came up with a sort of beautiful palette of genetic correlations that showed on one hand something that we expected, and that is that the genes that influence risk for anorexia also influence risk for other psychiatric disorders. The strongest genetic correlation was with obsessive compulsive disorder. That's no surprise because we see that, that we see them co-occurring all the time. We see them in family members, we see them in the same people, and we see OCD persist even after anorexia, a person recovers from anorexia, but also depression, anxiety, neuroticism. Then we also found a positive genetic correlation with measured physical activity. And I personally love this one because I know through a lot of my training, a lot of people that I worked with in eating disorders programs thought that when people with anorexia moved around a lot or exercised a lot or had difficulty sitting still or fidgeted, it was all sort of a willful desire to lose weight. Well, we found this positive genetic correlation with physical activity suggesting that some of the same genes that influence risk for anorexia also influence a tendency to be highly physically active. So we know that there's a biological component to that hyperactivity as well. And then of course, the big reveal in these genetic correlations was that unexpected correlation with metabolic and anthropometric or body measurement factors. So some of the same genes that influence risk for obesity influence risk for anorexia, but in the opposite direction. So their effects go in the opposite direction. And that is the whole part that just sort of blew a lot of people's minds, to be perfectly frank, because up until now, they were comfortable with that first part that I talked about, the psychiatric disorder correlations, but the rest of it, that was the new part. That was the transformational finding that came out of Angie. I can't wait for the transformational findings that are com- going to come out of Edgy as well. It's oh, so I know. I can't wait. <laughs> what's going to be the next thing? Because those right. were huge. Right. They were huge findings. Yep. So if there are people thinking, well, my mother or my father or my aunties had an eating disorder, does that mean that I am destined to have one? Can you explain, you know, why or why not that would be the case? Yes. So the answer to that is you're absolutely not destined. So I'm going to give a couple answers and pull them all together. So first off, there will never just be one gene that influences anorexia nervosa. So it's not like your mom had the gene and she married your dad or found a reproductive material to unite with to create you, um, however that happened, however you were conceived. And because you got that gene, you're going to develop anorexia. That's not the type of illness this is. It's called a complex trait. And what that means that there are hundreds and maybe even thousands of genes, all of which have a small effect, but they work in concert and they also work in concert with environmental factors. It's not just a, you have it or you don't. It's a dosage thing. Some people have high genetic risk for anorexia. Some people have low genetic risk for anorexia. But coupled with that, some people have high environmental risk for anorexia, and some people have low environmental risk for anorexia. So theoretically, you could have very few risk genes that be in a super high risk environment. 
Like you might have some sort of sports coach that just like is all about thin to win and lose weight. And you, you know, you didn't get that gold medal because you were 10 pounds too weight, you know, too heavy or whatever. And that could theoretically chip away at you till you develop an eating disorder. Or you could be at really high risk, but maybe never go on your first diet. And for some reason, never develop sort of low body esteem. And you might never express your genetic predisposition. So this research forces us to think in terms of probabilities. And it also forces us to remember that it is always genes and environment acting and co-acting. I always talk about it like when I talk about my own journey, that for me, the genes loaded the gun and the environment pulled the trigger because, you know, I was genetically predisposed. Then I had all the personality characteristics of someone who would develop anorexia. And then as soon as I was put into my all-girls private school, the scene was set. I didn't really even have a chance. Yep. You know, it's so funny. Someone, someone tried to figure out who the first person was that said that genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And apparently it leads back to me. And I'm convinced I wasn't the first person who said that, but yet someone said I was determined to figure out who it is. And Dr. Bulick, I think you're the first one who ever said that. And I was like, oh, I just wish it weren't such a violent image. I've been trying to think of, you know, a nonviolent way of saying the I same thing. I but- thought about that it's a violent image. <laughs> I guess because for me, it's like, I think it's perfect because something does, I think, fire off in you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's something happens. It's a catalyst. Right. And so for right. me, I actually think it's perfect. And I've never once thought of it as a violent image and I don't like guns at all. So, and I say it all the time. So yeah, it's interesting that when you think about it like that though. But I haven't found anything better. And I think it's just because I'm American and I'm sensitive to those things. Yes. You know, I don't like guns either, but no, I, I've not been able to come up with a better one. So, but I think so many people, it resonates with them. Yes. And parents say the same thing. You know, sometimes they'll say, you know, it just, it was like a switch went off. It's like, she's not my daughter anymore. He's not my son anymore. There was this transformation that happened. So it it does capture something, you know, and that might be, you know, we might find out that something actually happens biologically at that moment. And and I think one of the things that I talk about a lot, even in people who are long-term recovered from anorexia nervosa, is that they have to be hypervigilant about ever being in negative energy balance again. And what I mean by that is when you're expending more energy than you're consuming, because that seems to be one of the things that can pull the trigger again, that can really lead to a relapse. You know, just in the last couple of years, I knew a couple of people in my circle who had been recovered for the longest time. And all of them just had these experiences where they were in relatively short periods of negative energy balance. All three of them relapsed. And then once they started heading down that hill again, it was really hard for them to put the brakes on. So that's a a really important warning. And that doesn't mean that you never get well. No. It just, it means that it's a vulnerability. It's like, you know, I broke my back a long time ago, right? And I'm pretty fit now and I can exercise, but every once in a while I will do something that will mess me up for a while. So I, it's my, it's my health legacy, right? And I have to be respectful of my health legacy. And I think this is something that people who have a history of anorexia nervosa have to respect and understand that their body doesn't deal well with negative energy balance. And as you say, it's not that you're not fully recovered and it's not that you're not free. It's just something that you have to be really mindful of. It can be something, it's such a slippery slope because we know how, how fast those eating disorders come on. Exactly. Now, 
With Edgy, it obviously aims to further the, the knowledge of, of how genes play in the development of eating disorders. So how will this benefit not only those who are affected by eating disorders, but also society as a whole? Well, I think you actually touched on it in the beginning. You know, one of my sort of life's campaigns is to destigmatize mental illness. And, you know, people draw this artificial line between, you know, everything that's above the eyebrows and everything that's below, you know, as being somatic versus psychiatric. And I don't draw that line. And I think that line really gets people into trouble. And there's so much more stigma for things that happen in the brain or in the mind, however you want to think about it. So I think what this will do is it'll really help anchor us in the fact that these two things, the brain and the mind, the body and the mind, they are so deeply intertwined that you cannot do that dualism. You can't pull them apart. And I think everything that we do, really, all the results from our studies, the things that we look at, you know, the neuroimaging research, the genetic research, is all bringing us to a point where we don't make that distinction anymore. And we don't label it as somehow stigmatizing or, or weakness or choice. You know, all of these things that just make a person who has these illnesses feel bad. You shouldn't have to feel embarrassed because your child has an eating disorder. You shouldn't have to feel ashamed because your mother's depressed. We have to normalize these things as part of the human condition, especially now. I mean, mental illness is off the charts right now during the pandemic. I mean, we had a 4,000% increase in telehealth in the United States, and a third of that was mental health related. We have a mental illness pandemic on the heels of this pandemic, and we're going to have to pay attention to it. And I think this might be one of the few good things that has come out of this. People realize that anyone is vulnerable to mental illness. If you stress the system enough, no matter how robust you are, you too can be at risk. Absolutely. And you're, you're right. It is so, so important for people to understand that and not think that they are invincible. <laughs> no, in fact, that invincibility can lead you to being blindsided. Exactly. Exactly. And I always talk about the power of vulnerability and speaking up and speaking out because not only does that help you to get the support that you need and it can be really empowering, but it also helps others to bring these disorders out of the shadows and to really bring them into the light, which is ultimately going to help people to struggle less for a less of a period of time too, you know. It's like we don't right. want people to be spending years and years in the grips of these things. No, exactly. And I think it's so true. Sharing stories is such an important way to make other people feel comfortable talking about what they're going through. You know, it's like, I see that so often. I just did something with Congress people in the United States a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I could spout off statistics until I'm blue in the face. But what really hits them is when people share their stories. It's just so powerful. We've gotten away from realizing how powerful stories are, but it's what connects us as humans. It's what sort of opens the door for other people to share their own. So, you know, like what you're doing, it's just so powerful for you to come out and to talk about your experience and to sort of like question me about what I'm doing because it's important to you and you know it's important to other people. But, you know, lived experience and sharing lived experience just is 
it's another one of those uniting factors that really just brings people together and helps people live and recover. Yeah, no, it sure does. I'm always, I'm still always surprised when I stand up and I speak about my story in a really raw, authentic way, because I feel that that's what's needed. You know, I'm always say that I'm an open book, obviously I don't talk about figures and, and triggering things like that. But other than that, it's like, ask me anything, ask me why I did that or how that felt, because I want people to really have that inside knowledge of what it's like to be in that beast of an illness. And so many people will come up to me, even if they've read my story, I've not even heard me speak about it and say, if this is the first time I've ever told anyone, I haven't told my husband, I haven't told my children, you know, I've been suffering for 35 years. And now I'm like realizing that I do need help. And there is nothing more, I don't know, it just warms my heart so much when people can finally take that leap and go, right, where do I start? Where do I begin? I want to be free. And that all comes from storytelling, as you say. Yep. Now, what would be your ideal outcome from Edgy? What would you like to see happen off the back of this research in an ideal world? So I would like to have as strong of results for bulimia and binge eating disorder as we have from anorexia. I would like to have a very clear idea of multiple genes that influence each of them that assort into biological pathways that tell us something biologically about what's going on with people with these illnesses so that we can then take that information and potentially develop pharmacologic agents or medicines that address that biology. Now, what's really important is we have no medications anywhere that address the biology of anorexia nervosa. In fact, we have no medications that actually work reliably for anorexia nervosa because we don't understand the biology, you know, and the drugs that we do have for bulimia and binge eating disorder are borrowed from other illnesses, right? So fluoxetine is borrowed from depression. Listexamphetamine is borrowed from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We have nothing for any of the eating disorders that arise from knowledge of the biology of eating disorders. When you think about that, that's a problem. So What I hope on the other end of edgy is that we solve that problem and we actually, you know, really start to understand what the underlying biology looks like so that we can target it effectively. I am not saying really importantly that there's going to be like a magic medication that's going to take anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder away. There's still going to be psychological work to do. Remember those genetic correlations showed both a psychiatric component and a metabolic component. You know, I'm not looking for a magic pill because I don't think it's that simple. Just like genes and environment influence risk, metabolism and psychiatry are also going to have to come together for cure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, who can take part in EG? Who's eligible to take part? So it varies in different countries. Basically, to figure out for, I'm going to get the website right. In Australia, it's edgy dot org dot au got it okay good and new zealand it's edgy.nz um in the states it's edgy.org i mean i have to keep all this stuff in my mind and sometimes it gets fuzzy it's late at night here and australia i can't remember what age they go down to so you can you know more about the study than i do so it goes all the way down to 13 um in australia but once again for those people who are underage or if you have concerns about any of the content of the survey, do it with someone you care about. You know, have someone around to talk about with it. You can have had an eating disorder at any time in your life. Does it matter? You can be up to any age, 
you know, we, you could be a hundred and we'll take you because there probably were people who had eating disorders 80 years ago. We just didn't know about it. That's pretty much it. It's a pretty much open door. To anyone who is, you know, considering taking part, but they are a little bit hesitant. What would you say to them? I would say, take a look at the website, read a little bit about it. Again, talk to someone you trust about it. You can even contact the researchers and ask questions. You know, we really try to be responsive to emails. If you have questions, any, any questions about their research, pretty darn good at responding to them and making sure that we answer your questions and just make a decision if it's right for you. And we're going to be going on for another two years. So there's not a rush. If you don't feel like you're ready right now, give it a couple months. You know, some people just say like, I'm really in the throes of my illness right now and I don't think I can do it. And we don't want to push you to do it. You might feel okay in a couple months and then come back and give it a look again. Of course, we do want people who are excited now to participate because, you know, I'm excited to get these results too. We researchers get pretty pretty excited when the data starts rolling off the presses because, you know, this is, this is meaningful for us as well. You know, I've seen way too many people die and that is what I hate about these illnesses. I absolutely hate the fact that in my field, you have to see so many people die and deal with so many parents who have lost children. And it is just, it's actually why a lot of people don't go into the field because it's just too hard. To me, that's why I'm here, because I want to stop that. That's what I really want to come out of the other end of this. I want to stop deaths from eating disorders. Nothing would make me feel like I have made a difference in this world than if by the end of my career, I can say, no longer am I going to get emails or Facebook messages or indications somehow that yet someone else has been taken by this illness that's what I want to have happen. Yeah. It's a big driving force for me too. It's, um, it's horrible when you, um, when you see that there are lives that are being lost. Yeah. What would you like to say to listeners who are still in the midst of their battle? Don't give up. No. And I think you and I chatted about this a little bit before. These are hellish illnesses. They're super hard to recover from, but I have seen people who have been you know, slapped with horrible labels like lifers. You know, you're always going to have to live with it. You're never going to recover. I've seen people who have been fired by their therapists because they haven't done what they were told to do. I can only sometimes use the word miracles of people who people have given up on, but someone has just stuck with them. Someone has stuck with them through the hardest of times and somehow just like that switch turned on, they scraped or crawled their way out of the darkness that is an eating disorder. You know, every once in a while, I'll get like a, an email or a handwritten note from a patient from years ago, someone who had been given a label like that. And they'll tell me what's going on in their life. And, you know, all of a sudden they have kids and they have a job or they're a social worker. And I just sit there and cry. Um, I'm doing it now, Um, you know, know. because it's just, (laughs) you and I are both like, oh, that is what it's all about. If a life gets saved, if a person gets freed from the illness and goes on to live a life and it happens, it happens in cases where you don't expect it. And when it does happen, it is 
the most beautiful and as you said, the most heartwarming thing. And that's what it's all about. Yeah, it is. And getting those emails is, is incredible. And it reminds you of the, you know, those that didn't make it, but you've yeah. got to hold on to those ones that, that did and and really and use that to keep empowering you to keep doing. It's hard work. It's, you know, it's it's confronting, it's intense, but that's, I think, you know, that's what drives me was I'm sure it drives you is those stories of, hey, look, that's where I was and here I am now. And that's, those are the things that we've got to, got to use to keep on fighting this this brave fight and to create change exactly thank you so much I mean I know I've said thank you for everything that you're doing but (laughs) like no seriously thank you because you're just so dedicated to to eating disorders and in particular you know this research into the genetics and I know without a shadow of a doubt just how much of a difference is going to make not only to people now, but in so many years to come. And we're going to look back and and look at these studies and go, wow, you know, and not imagine a time before that we, you know, didn't have that knowledge. Mm. I honestly do think it is going to change the face of eating disorder treatment worldwide. I mean, we know it's going to save lives, but it is just going to create such a systemic difference. And, and as I said before, too, help to dispel those really damaging myths and stigma that still unfortunately surround eating disorders and keep people from speaking out and speaking up so thank you and thank you for all of the incredible knowledge that you've given today because I know people will be fascinated empowered and really really enjoy listening to your passion as well and Millie thank you so much it was lovely talking to you and I sure hope we get to meet each other face to face someday oh me too absolutely maybe we need to have a rendezvous in New Zealand there you go (laughs) I'm up for it. Brilliant. Thanks, Cindy. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Millie. Take care of yourself. There is hope at ended.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media Production.